Welcome to the latest edition of Kelly Dry's AdLaw Access podcast. I'm Alisa Hutnick, a partner at Kelly Dry, and I'm so delighted to have with me here a friend, Robert Cunningham, who I've known over the years, but in his latest iteration um, at Catch. And so, hey, welcome, Robert. Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, so folks may not know what Catch is. They may not know who am I speaking with. So since we are we have the podcast, I'd love if you could give a little bit of your background and how you your journey to, to Catch. I'd be happy to. Folks need to know who they're listening to. So I am the head of legal at Catch, and we are uh, a data privacy and data governance startup based out of San Francisco, though I recently moved to the Chicago area. And I arrived at Catch after previously being at Salesforce, and I worked for a company called Quip that was acquired by Salesforce. And when I got to Salesforce, I was on the legal team, and they said, hey, you're going to be in charge of issues related to Quip, where you came from, but also a company called Crux that Salesforce had also recently acquired. And Crux was a data management platform. And I didn't know very much at all about ad tech or MarTech. And I really had to get a crash course, somewhat self-imposed, but I also leaned on lots of others or self-guided. And I also leaned on some others to help me. And I became at least dangerous enough to to pass myself off as an ad tech and MarTech privacy lawyer and, and product counsel within Salesforce. So I joined some of the veterans of Salesforce outside at a new startup studio called Superset. And one of the companies within Superset is Catch. And as I said, we're a data privacy and data governance startup. And uh, I think I'll leave it at that. And we'll learn more about Catch perhaps as we go along. Yep. And just so folks, as you're listening, it's A-E-T-C-H. Dot com just to make sure it's not C-A-T-C-H. That's uh, right. Catch with a K if you're looking for us out there on the World Wide Web. Yeah, well, so we'll, we'll get into Catch, but I one of the you know first times I met you, it, it was focused on the ad tech, MarTech angle. And to be a privacy lawyer in this space has been such a roller coaster. I'm biased, but I think particularly interesting uh, with a lot of, lot of changes, a lot of technology changes, a lot of legal changes. I'm curious, just from your vantage point, kind of what, how do you view the way privacy law has really evolved and where we find ourselves at this interesting juncture? It's fun for me because I think I came into it when it was already pretty crazy. So I, as I mentioned, I'm a relative newbie. I like to think I'm a fast learner, but I'm a relative newbie to the ad tech legal space. And I should say, I think that the average person's conception of privacy today, when they say privacy, uh, average person or Alistair McTaggart for that reason, or for that, for that, uh, is, is ad tech, right? I think that's really the most celebrated or perhaps infamous part of what's going on in the privacy space. It might've been government surveillance, right? For a while back in the day, maybe a little detour into election fraud, but ad tech is where the action is for the most part. And so it's been crazy since I got into it and crazy is perhaps not a very good descriptor, but it's been in flux, right? And new technologies have been coming in and old technologies, meaning what, 10, 15 years old have been going out, right? So new, maybe things like fingerprinting and old things like the third party cookie. And of course, in the background is all this legal flux, starting with GDPR, 
which I think came along, and I have a little bit of a soapbox about this, but GDPR came along and reminded everybody that there were some other laws that had been on the books for a little while. And I think everyone just started to, to scramble and get smart. And it's been really convoluted and chaotic. And in that respect, for a practitioner, it's been fun. But at the end of the day, in your role, Alyssa, you need to counsel companies. And in my role, I need to lead and help companies grow. And so it's hard. It's hard to find a coherent thread through all of the requirements. It's hard to keep track of all the technological changes. It's a very tech-heavy part of privacy counseling. And it's hard in, I'm going to say this word, it's a strong one. It's hard in an ethical sense too, because privacy is normative to a certain extent. And you're not only counseling companies about or guiding companies along the lines of what they need to do from a legal perspective, but there's an element of what you should do and what you might want to do from a more ethical or social perspective. So all of those factors have made it a wild ride and it gets written about in the papers and lots of clicks for good reason, I would say. So um, a couple buzzwords you said that we know what we're talking about, but I think it'd be helpful just to explain a little bit. Ad tech and MarTech, um, I know why I think it's some, those are some of the most interesting areas, but to call yourself an ad tech MarTech lawyer, what does that mean? Yes. <laughs> oh no, you're going to press me on this like, oh, yeah. vernacular. Okay. I, I can see people in the audience rolling their eyes when I say this. When I, <laughs> MarTech, I'll start at the highest level. When I say MarTech, to a certain extent, I'm talking about strategies and technologies to generate demand for a product, attention for a product, uh, sales of a product. And if you want to think of a particular tool, I would think of high volume email. That would be my conception of MarTech, as well as the general just sort of marketing strategies and drumming up interest and, and knowledge and excitement around a product. Ad tech I believe, is more technical. Ad tech is the workings of the internet, uh, mobile apps, and, and, and URLs to track individuals and gather personal data about them. And I do not mean this to sound nefarious. The fact that I feel like I have to give that caveat is a testament to what we're talking about here. But it's the, the efforts and mainly successes to track individuals and their online or in-app behaviors to build a profile of them such that you can more effectively target advertisements that are more relevant to them so that they buy more of your product or spend more time on your brand sites, et cetera. That's what I think of as a, a ad tech and martech lawyer. And it's really wrapped up in issues of privacy and security. There's, there are a lot of threads there. Um, I'm gonna pull on one, which is the nefarious side of it. You know, we talk mm -hmm. about tracking and, you know, I think some could argue that in any evolving ecosystem, you're going to have some who go too far with the normative, right, and with, with their ethical decisions. Um, and, it, and it has, in some ways, clouded the whole industry. But I think at the bottom, it, it's about personalization and companies wanting to personalize so that the consumer who's looking for a certain A, B, or C product can actually find that product and all the noise um, that, you know, we're surrounded with in our daily lives and online. Um, but you know, it is, it, it's a tug and pull, it's such a tug and pull on where that balances and the cultural aspect, you know, from US versus Europe versus Latin America. Um, talk to me about like how, maybe some of the practical tips on how you 
made some of those judgment calls because I hear from a lot of in-house clients where they it's it's all in the gray and they're trying to guide their clients on risk-based decisions in this space so I you know you you've certainly helped help with that quite a bit so any any practical tips on that Mm, that is a good and challenging way to to look at it so Salesforce was, I'll start with sort of personal history. Salesforce is a leader in the idea that trust is a valuable commodity. And I guess I choose those words deliberately. It's a commodity, it's valuable, and it's important to build a deeper relationship with your customers that may go beyond the strict literal requirements of what the law requires at a minimum. And so that's the, that's where I cut my teeth, as it were, as a privacy lawyer, and I've carried that into my time at Catch, which is to say, I take it as a given that I, my own company and the companies uh, and customers that we pursue will meet their legal obligations, and then some, I suppose, is the way to put it. I, I personally believe that we should be aiming for something better. The goal is to try to drive business value through those, call them, exceptional efforts. So that's a fancy way of saying the, the holy grail is to achieve compliance and also drive business value at the same time. And one of the practical ways that we try to achieve that at Catch, for example, is to work hard and think creatively about building what we call privacy experiences that make customers happy, right? Every business focuses on making their customers happy. And what we did at Salesforce and what we're trying to do even more at Catch is bringing that same focus to the experience of privacy choice and the experience of honoring your data subject requests. So that if you are, and and I want to be very concrete where I can, that means that when you go to a website or an application, the way that you are asked questions about your privacy choices, the way that they're worded, the colors that are used, the ease with which they appear and disappear all of that can be done poorly and can be done well. Never mind the fact that the law requires you to do something. So if you take that baseline and then you work up from there and try to make these experiences as intuitive and seamless and transparent as you can, you may find yourself able to be compliant and also in a better position with your customers so that they are willing to share as much information as they did before or maybe even more. Because, of course, the marketer's great concern, and the market, marketers tend to be our boogeyman here, and I, I don't mean to imply that, but it, we have to be efficient in our, in our characters. So the marketers fear that the data funnel will dry up if you adhere to the letter of these various laws. And that is not an unreasonable concern. But it also, I dare say, is a little bit misplaced, because unless you want to trade in a non-compliant playing field, you need to do what these laws require of you. And then the question is, how do you do it well so that you can please your customers at the same time that you're complying with the relevant laws? So I fear, Alyssa, that that was not perhaps as practical as you might have asked it to be, but I can try again later if we get another crack at it. Well, we'll definitely get there. But I think the theme that you raise is a good one. And privacy in the US, for example, had been a lighter touch approach, right? There was a lot more flexibility. And so 
it made sense from a business standpoint for compliance to really follow, be the tail to that, to, to clean up and make sure it looked okay. And I think as we have more privacy, more specific privacy obligations, it doesn't work to do it at the tail. So when you have to start making it from a business decision to your point on the experience, you could do it poorly or legal is telling you kind of thou shall fit in these boxes, or you could think about what is that consumer experience and how can we actually make this thing? How can we make this you know, the positive side to, to the journey of consumers interaction with us online? To the extent that I've seen much focus on this space, it has been more mercenary is maybe the word and a lot of A-B testing of if I put the slider for consent over in this corner versus over in this corner, will I get more data or will I keep more data? And again, I don't want to denigrate data as the valuable oil, as they say, for this economy that it is. But what you and I, I think, are imagining is something a little bit more creative and a little bit more inspirational, which is rethinking all of these privacy experiences so that they are held to the same same usability standards and user pleasure standards that other software is, right? So that it's not just a question of how do we preserve as much data as we can with these different configurations, but how do we lead our most valuable customers through a journey that makes them feel comfortable? And yes, comfortable so that they continue to share their data with us in a way that provides value, as you say, that ultimately is used to personalize experiences for them. When this is done in an appropriate way, it can be a virtuous cycle for the business as well as the consumers. I think the way we get there it really does go back to your point about Salesforce on what it, what is the overall point that is important to the company? Is it the compliance with law? That's really abstract. I think the trust aspect, right? We're making these decisions that all really roll up to a few important principles and how the company wants to make decisions. And I've seen, if you don't have that, then they become a lot of ad hoc decisions, slippery slope, you know, how far can one group press uh, the legal team? And so as I hear you and, and just thinking through some of the conversations I have with in-house clients, it's the privacy role now has to be an evangelist and a, and a biz dev and, you know, bringing people along and really showing um, team, relevant teams and stakeholders the opportunity with privacy. I agree with you. It's, it's a it's an exciting time to be in our roles because as you say, it's no longer just a tell me what CCPA says or tell me what CPRA says. Actually putting aside the fact that you have to be pretty good at reading, you know, exegesis and tea leave reading to figure out what they say, maybe less so CPRA. But you do have to be at times an evangelist for for privacy. And that's the way that you can start to participate in the competitive advantage of the company, right? Legal has always been a cost center and the, the nanner nanners and that you can't do this. I think privacy is an opportunity to, to put one's shoulder into the efforts to move the company forward. And of course, again, the marketing folks will say, what do you mean moving the company forward? You're limiting our ability to collect and use personal data. Um, as I've said, we just have to get more creative about it. And if you're going to complain about what are laws at this point, then I, I hesitate to say it this bluntly, but you're you're wasting your time in looking backward rather than looking forward. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Uh, because the privacy laws now have grown so complicated, 
it, it has been really fascinating to see just the market of privacy tools, tech tools, compliance vendors, support systems, services. Um, and yet the first question I'll get from clients who have not done their research yet is, who do you recommend for a privacy tool? Uh, as if there's like the one one uh, type. So talk to me about, because given your, you know, Catch's specific role, and I want to hear, obviously, you give, tell us more about Catch, but just from the, the privacy tech tool market place, like, how do you see it? How would you explain it to, to somebody if they were not aware of the dis- differences? It might start with the epiphany that legal teams are tech buyers, right, at all, or at least even if they don't hold the budget, which we can circle back to, I think is more common than not, but legal is not known as one of the hotbeds of, you know, tech usage and utility within organizations. And so there's a lot of green field, as they say there, to bring more efficient, uh, to bring more efficiency to, to legal teams, whether they're large or small. It's been a little bit, you know, the sort of the, the stereotype that it's a little bit hidebound and, and archaic is probably true in many respects. And that's partly the individuals themselves, the, the lawyers, and partly the fact that I think there is a dearth of excellent legal technology out there. But when a problem of the scale of privacy today, a challenge, we should say, a challenge of the scale of privacy today comes along, it begs for software, to put it simply, that helps these teams deal with what's essentially an unmanageable problem in scope and complexity if you don't use software to to handle it. So I think that you have to realize that these are relatively unsophisticated, and I count myself among this group, so no offense intended. These are relatively unsophisticated or rather inexperienced buyers of technology in legal teams, and they don't have a great handle on how to go about analyzing and testing technologies one of the things you might not have experience with is knowing how much they really can do for you and whether that can be achieved at a high implementation cost or a low implementation cost. That's all to say that these are these are new challenges for many of the people who are put in these buying positions. And I do think that there is a continued inertia to do things the old way and to hire additional lawyers or, no offense, Alyssa, but to hire outside counsel which clearly has its place, definitely has its place in this environment. But it's a unique, I think, a relatively unique situation where knowing what you need to do is so inadequate compared to actually having to go do it. We are not writing memos about GDPR and its various legal bases. We are trying to help businesses collect, process, and manage data in a compliant fashion and use it to drive their business forward. And for that, you need something more than advice from lawyers. You need software that helps you manage that data and then uh, use it in an effective way for your business. So that's where software comes in. I think that this market is is immature, is a way to put it. I think this market is immature right now. So if you were there to break it down and I hear terms like first generation privacy software, second generation. Um, maybe the door opener I hear often is I need data mapping. I need help with data mapping. There are yeah. certainly other services and tools that come along with that. But what are the different types of privacy software that you see on the market, first gen or second gen? Yeah. So I've, um, the 
the hypothetical you does need data mapping. I think that the more focus on the data here, the better. For example, there are tools out there that you might call academic tools, which you know might be competitive with people um, like you who have a great resource of knowledge, right? But there are tools that tell you, here are the various laws in these various countries, and here's what they say. Okay, there, there are those tools. I don't put a ton of value on those um, for various reasons that we don't need to, to go into too much here. But the first thing that you really do need to look to, and you said it, Alyssa, is data mapping. You got to know what you have and, and where you have it in terms of data, personal data, anonymous data, pseudonymous data, before you can start to control it. So that's a big category, which is the data discovery or the asset mapping tools. And that, I think, is a good starting point. After that, once you know what you have, then you have to look at the dynamism around it. And that would be, okay, where, where did it come from? Like, where are we collecting it? Like, how did it come into to our environment? And where does it go once it's in our environment? So I, appropriately or not, put a little bit of a static label on the data asset mapping and the data discovery. But then, then you sort of light the fire and everything starts to move around. And that's where companies like Catch, and we're not the only one, I don't, uh, I don't at any point want to imply that, They're, that's where companies like Catch come into play, where we help you track and control and query all of this data that you now know you have of various types, whether it's sensitive data, according to whose definition, whether it's anonymous data, according to what mathematical justification. And you get to treat all of this data differently based on knowing what it is. But you need to be able to assign some sort of identity to this data as it moves around in your systems. So that's the kind of thing that Catch does is we we sort of attribute a what we call a permit. You might think of it like a passport to data as it moves around in a system, not at a person level, but at a much more granular level so that you can always know what, for example, the consent status of this data is, what attributes are associated with this data. So that an example you might imagine is, can you run an email marketing campaign against this data? Well, query the data and just only be returned those those elements that are fair game and not be returned those that are not. So nobody has to sift through anything. The technology does that for you. Or if you have a data scientist who's running some sort of internal process and they want to perform a certain analytical operation on data, instead of having to do any pre-work about querying the right data set or the wrong data set, there are systems in our product that essentially only make available that data that is permitted to be queried according to its privacy metadata that's associated with that data. So that's the control element. You've got all the data that came into the system. You need to manage it and control it. And then you might step it up to some of the things that we talk a lot about, which are what happens when people ask questions about the data. And I would include in that consent around the data changes or legal basis changes. You change it or the data subject attempts to change it or a data subject request is lodged. And how do you manage that up and down your processor, controller, subprocessor, uh, ecosystem, uh, or stream of data? Those are more the, call them legalistic operations that can be performed against the data, moving it into more of a compliance function. So there are products all throughout these various areas. And we at Catch operate in most, uh, most of them, but nobody operates in all of them and, and probably shouldn't. That is fair. Uh, you mentioned stakeholders and budgeting, and that is a big pain point I see because it starts with maybe the privacy lawyer has some 
flexibility, right, to, to start looking for some, some support, but they're often, they don't have a big budget to pull from. And usually a lot of those tools solve a whole bunch of issues, right? Mm-hmm. There's components, other needs within the business, information security, marketing to just have ease and, and being able to, to turn around campaigns a lot faster if you have the ability to, to know what the governance is so, so much more quickly. Uh, litigation in terms of e-discovery, who do you see attend these meetings um, when when you have these initial discovery meetings? Do you see them kind of ref, uh, reflect a, a bunch of different stakeholders? Who would you recommend be the kind of stakeholders that, that are in those meetings? Right now, the vast majority of the time, if there are lawyers available at the target companies, they you know, some element of the legal team will be there. People still shunt privacy into the, the legal realm and the legal audience. And I do think that's appropriate. If, if only for subject matter familiarity, that's definitely appropriate. As I mentioned at the outset, and of course this varies with the scope of the organization you're talking about, but the budget is often coming from some sort of, um, you know, tech, tech tools or, um, you know, um, information technology office that manages this at a, at a more general level for various teams within a business. So you will almost always have, when, when we do a pitch, for example, you will almost always have a representative of the legal team, if there is a legal team. Um, by the way, sometimes outside counsel, if, if they use outside counsel, then you will have this, this tech buying representative who often holds the budget, but has very little familiarity with the problem at hand. Um, often someone from uh, the information security and, and also just just um, more of a pure security and infrastructure security approach. Point being, it does, th- these sorts of privacy technologies are received by businesses as, as something that they know already bleeds across privacy and security and, and then the, the sort of practicalities of, of the tech buying. I think that it's appropriate that legal needs to be a a strong voice in these conversations. I almost said gatekeeper, and I actually don't I don't quite think that's that's maybe perhaps a little bit too strong. I think legal needs to be there to facilitate the conversation and be a subject matter resource and provide some of the use cases. But Security is still really, really important. Information security and data governance are still really important. And by that, I mean to emphasize that, call it a speech I went on about where the data is and being able to track it. That's not so much a privacy problem or a privacy expertise problem. If you focus on this as a data governance issue that has a privacy articulation or some privacy use cases, then I think the appropriate buyer of these solutions might well be a more general information security or data governance audience rather than someone who sits in a privacy function within the legal team. That's helpful because I it does come in, the, the interest comes usually from privacy because it's the need now if they don't already have this type of solution but the effort to who do you enlist in the effort, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. It's thinking through who, A, who has budget, but who has decision-making authority over some of these data, just poor data governance um, questions and issues. Yeah. If you, at the outset, set the, 
you know, plant the flag that this isn't so much a privacy question or a DSR question or a consent question. Uh, it's a it's a data question. And then by necessity, the question broadens. It doesn't spin out of control, at least it shouldn't, but the question broadens. And everyone in the organization who is exposed to data or uses data or needs to manage data and govern data gets involved. And for a legal team that wants to buy a tool to help them, I think that's a good thing. Bring in all of the other teams that have a dog in this fight and might have a lot of technical expertise that can be leveraged to sort this out. Then you're not you know, on an island making a choice about the software that is sometimes too technical for just someone to speak about privacy. One of the other questions that, that I get a lot is, what kind of questions should I ask these, these vendors? Um, help me come up with my list. And so I think about it from your perspective, what kinds of questions, even theme-wise, theme should folks ask it so that they can actually get a better understanding of what the software can do for them and be better able to distinguish between you know, tool A, tool B, tool C in terms of what it can truly offer and how it's going to fit with their business and their needs? Yeah, we actually authored... <clears throat> excuse me, we authored a, a, a buyer's guide recently with like 10 questions exactly to this point. Um, Self-serving undeniably, right? But uh, they were questions that everyone should ask about the various technologies. And there is definitely a divide between, you know, old, older gen and, and next gen. I'll give you an example. Like, is it, uh, if you're focused on the consumer context and the, and the customer facing context, are you looking for a cookie banner or something more, right? So that, that would be an example of an initial one. I can't avoid my, my soapbox moment about how I'm, I'm pretty convinced that GDPR inspired everyone to rediscover e-privacy and, re, and, and begin to comply with e-privacy from 2009 when it started requiring consent for cookies. That's what GDPR compliance looks like for a lot of businesses it does not look like a thorough, comprehensive set of you know, questions about data processing purposes, which is what GDPR should be in a real implementation. Uh, the word cookies never appears in GDPR for what it's worth. So that's an example of a question you might ask. Am I getting a cookie banner or am I getting something more? And the more doesn't have to be heavier and more intimidating and death to data. The more can be something very consumer friendly and trust positive, but it shouldn't just be a banner that says, do you consent to advertising and you know targeted, targeted advertising based cookies? Because that doesn't mean a lot to users. And I would argue that it's not entirely compliant with what's really required. The other types of questions you might ask are uh, about, um, this is leveling back up a step, is about implementation and support for implementation. I think that a lot of folks uh, buy something and have been impressed with its capabilities and are then left uh, you know, with the bicycle that you get for Christmas that has 3,000 parts that you don't know how to assemble and you can't ever ride it. That kind of quandary that you're left with. We do hear a lot of people say that the implementation um, you know, has, created, has created a dream that they can never achieve because they're not, they don't know how to make it work with their other systems. And that's where those tech buyers, that tech audience that we spoke about can be very helpful as well. 
privacy lawyers might fall in love with the capabilities of the product. But when you start to think about how it will interact with your other systems, how agnostic it might be for some of the other things you do, that's an important question to ask. So what's implementation going to be like? Not just how long is it going to take, but how hard is it? How much you know, person power will have to be devoted to it? How complicated will it be? How prone to breaking? How brittle will the system be? Another thing that you need to ask is how well will this system control other systems? The time has long since passed that data was managed within organizations only on their own home-built or you know, homegrown technology. Every business has tons of other vendors they use, right? All these subprocessors, as we might call them, or service providers. That complicates the ecosystem a lot. And you need to buy enterprise privacy software and data governance software that not just can handle that complexity, but that is really built for that complexity and presumes that complexity. An example is how do you fulfill these data subject requests, deletion, access, whatever it might be in all of these third-party systems? It's hard enough to figure out how to respond to them automatically within your own you know, storage and your own databases. What about the data that you have deliberately passed down to some service provider? How do you make sure that they handle that data and respond to DSRs in a way that's going to work for your own privacy program? And you want that to be as automated as possible. We call that orchestration at Catch, and we would encourage privacy buyers to look for that, to replace the automatic, or excuse me, the manual with the, with the automatic, and to make sure that you are living up to your obligations a little bit of a detail is that CPRA has closed whatever gaps there might have been, or CPRA will close whatever gaps there might have been around who's responsible for making sure the data subject requests are fulfilled up and down the data um, stream. You can no longer say, well, I sent the request over to you. Oh, I, I didn't get it. You didn't send it to me. That Those days are gone. Someone's going to be responsible, and there's technology to help you with that now. Uh, those are a few of of the ones that I think about. And then I also think there are, you know, there are product and packaging issues for a growing business. Are you, are you, and this is a little bit out of my bailiwick, but I'll mention it anyway. Are you buying software that prepares you in a very vertical sense for a California compliance program? And then you buy a new set of software for VCDPA in Virginia and a new set of software for India? Or is it, as it should be in my mind, an adaptable platform that doesn't really care which regulation you're working with. It builds up from component parts that can contemplate all these various regulations and therefore doesn't charge by the regulation, but rather charges you for the, the horizontal capabilities of the platform rather than some sort of siloed approach. Those are, those are excellent points. What about questions that go to what happens if the relationship doesn't work out, right? The software doesn't work as they expected it would. What happens if they've invested all that time and there's termination? Do they end up with just some flat text files? Um, and now you're. T- <laughs> well, I say that because I, this is more of a first gen issue, but there's you know some services that really were built around the subscription aspect, mm-hmm. and you know, and really kind of maybe sharp elbows to keep on the subscription. And yeah. So, I mean, I just see even kind of way some of the current offerings. They, they are responding to that pain point. Yeah, so I, can, I really can only speak for, for Catch, and I hope to speak well of it, but the kind of data that we host, and I've struggled for a long time, maybe you can be helpful in how to, how to articulate this. We don't, we're not like a, an AWS or an Azure in that we host this, the, what you might call the substantive underlying data, right? We host the, those permits I was talking about. So the privacy metadata, 
that I would advocate, putting aside catch, the privacy metadata that a company needs to know about its data, right? Has Alyssa, has Alyssa from this device on this day consented to this purpose of processing? Has she had all of her data subject requests fulfilled? What jurisdiction is her data subject to? That's the kind of privacy metadata I'm talking about. You don't need to know anything about Alyssa. In fact, you don't need to know her name to store and manage that level of data around the substantive data underneath. That's the sort of data that a system like ours needs to host about a particular data subject. And there would be no question or no reason to not make that immediately available. In fact, it, it is by definition traveling with the underlying substantive data, such that if there were some sort of rupture in the relationship, all of that would be not so much even given back as left where it is associated with the underlying personal data that's so valuable to the business. So until you move into the world of talking about data brokers, I would not uh, be overly, con I mean, it's a box that you need to check, but I think the days of somehow harvesting the data and holding it hostage uh, hopefully have passed, but I can't speak for how other operations might be running to minimize their churn. Very diplomatic and, and very fair response. Um, one other FAQ that I get a lot is um, the InfoSec team is very concerned about having any cloud-based solutions. And they, you know, they think at the outset, maybe they want on-premise. So how do you typically respond to those types of concerns? We rarely hear it, Alyssa, first of all. On-prem is um, like... <laughs> nor do we sell Model Ts while we're at it. But um, no, I, it's, it does get asked from time to time, but it's quite rare. I, would, <laughs> I think I would push back against the InfoSec team about the, all the usual arguments about you know, cloud-based computing, both power and storage, EC2 and S3, versus what they might be advocating. And you know, if, you're, if your vendor, for the right price, the vendor is going to make it work to provide some sort of on-prem solution, we certainly would. We're not going to be that dogmatic about it, but I think the advantages um, are undeniable. So I, I don't know. I feel like, I, I feel like I've been uh, in, sound inflexible on that, but the, the, the cloud environment is the way to go for all sorts of reasons. Higher security and a higher availability, all of the, you know, practically a bunch of SOC principles I'm reciting there. Um, on-prem can be made available, but it's usually a poorer path, I think. Yeah, and we have all those kind of past analogs of on-prem software that was not updated in time and synced, and that tends to be where the vulnerabilities were introduced. So. Exactly. I mean, I want to cast my mind back to my days at a law firm that I, I'm, I'm proud of, but shall remain nameless. I'm pretty, and, and it was emphatically on-prem, even when the cloud was available. I'm pretty sure the IT practices were not quite the same as what the folks at AWS are doing down the road from you in, um, in Northern Virginia. <laughs> so yeah, it's, exactly. it's a different operation. <laughs> All right, so that's looking backward and looking forward. I think the takeaway there is really dig into the information security, um, confidence building information on why the cloud approach is, is gonna be a better fit. I'm all for, as though I have a choice, but I'm all for kicking the tires as hard and as long as you need to around security. And I think that you've heard me say this before. I think that that privacy is the is the upstart in this space and has definitely come to be an equal partner. But security is still critical, and they're intertwined and in all all these sorts of uh, you know philosophical debates we can have. But at the end of the day, the data needs to be uh, 
you know, kept secure or, or not much of these other considerations matter that much. So buyers should definitely do all sorts of homework around security. That would be table stakes, I think. Uh, I'm just advocating that security in the cloud is almost certainly going to be better than uh, the, the on-prem alternative, I would argue. And uh, you just need to make sure that the vendor you're looking at demonstrates, uh, you know, the right compliance certifications or just the right level of sophistication and experience around these issues. So looking ahead, we've got all this stuff in flux. We've got knowledge in flux. We've got laws in flux. Where do you see this going? I mean, if you were to predict a year or two years or even three years out, do you think everybody's more sophisticated on privacy? Do we have more options? Do we have less options? I think, I'll start with an easy one. I think that companies that ignored with some reason that ignored having to deal with employee data are going to start spending a lot of time dealing with employee data. For those who aren't in the weeds, the new California law will bring back the full privacy rights and obligations with respect to employees. So I think that's going to be a a big area of focus. That's uh, on the mundane end of things, but it's still worth noting. And it has been true under GDPR for a while, but that's one thing. I do think this... This landscape of privacy firebrands who are out in front and um, privacy deniers who are in the back and those in the middle who are maybe paralyzed by the uncertainty. I think all of these players are going to continue to have their place for a while longer. That probably sounds pretty underwhelming as as a statement, but I do think it's a commentary on the fact that we have not yet arrived anywhere. I think we still are very much in in the flux period. There are people who refuse to believe that the the gold rush of third-party data-based ad tech and martech is going to be turned off anytime soon. I think they're wrong. I think that the gold rush is starting to be if not turned off, diminished. I think that the flow is, is, is going to diminish. And it's probably, I, I, I happen to be an inherent, adherent to the argument that it's going to be diverted into the already wealthy hands of the big players in this space, right? So the first party, a, a purported concern for first party data will likely redound to the benefit of an established few already. So I think outside, and we don't need to name you know, who they all are. We know who we're talking about. I think outside of those big companies, it's going to be a mad scramble for other companies to figure out where they exist in the landscape going forward. I think there's a, there are the, the big but not, not huge companies that might be advocating for different first-party standards or different types of identifiers or advocating for new technologies that can be an alternative to the death of third-party cookies. But that group, I I believe, is pretty small. The ones who are offering competitive solutions and alternatives to what the the very largest will be be trading in. And then there's everybody else. And I think the everybody else, if I had to guess, are going to... Well, let me pause there. First of all, the the big ones and that next tier are the ones who are going to make investments in privacy software, I believe, for the most part. They have they have the the money and the time and the luxury to be concerned with these issues. I believe there's a vast swath of the market that will be led by individuals 
who have to make those mission statements that you and I talked about at the beginning. If you're a smaller company who is is struggling to make the most out of data, you could probably still make a good argument that the enforcement environment is moderate enough that you can continue to be dismissive about these concerns. I think we'll still see a fair amount of companies that are being dismissive. I do believe that a bigger and bigger portion is going to be led by individuals who are convinced that be approaching privacy as a competitive advantage is going to be the way to go. So I foresee in the next year or two a wider swath of the market that has embraced privacy as an opportunity or as a competitive advantage and starts to invest in technologies like ours that can help your customers have a better privacy experience and yes, help you preserve more of your data funnel and make sure that you're compliant. So long way of saying lots more chaos, getting very, very top heavy with I think some disingenuous arguments around first party data, disingenuous arguments across the board, I should say actually. And then a very large swath of others who are figuring out how to subsist and and make the most of the next couple of years. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that, that is right on. And it comes back to the point we were talking about of it's going to be all the more important to really know your data so that you can, in fact, make the most of it and, and seize those opportunities to lead with privacy as the market differentiator. But within that, know your customers, know your audience so that you can reach out to them more effectively. I think two things that have been holding people back in the, so you're absolutely right, the getting to know your data. The two things that have been holding people back are if you take it as a given that much of this is starting from the legal department or those folks who are responsible for these types of things at a smaller organization, they may not be technologically savvy. And so the concept of knowing your data is a scary one. And they also may be unaware that there are tools that can help you at a cost that doesn't have to be, and it sounds like I'm uh, on the infomercial now, but at a cost that doesn't have to be intimidating. I speak not just of my product, but I know the product space here. There are tools that can help companies understand what data they have in a way that doesn't have to be technically intimidating. And it unlocks so much potential to to be able to stress and think about this stuff less. I think that's the best argument that many of these practitioners can make in their own organizations. Make a moderate investment now to get your hands around the data that you have. It's not going to be as terrible as you think it's going to be. And it will enable you in the medium and definitely the long term to be able to stop worrying about these issues as much as you are currently worrying about them. Tech is not going to become 90% of your job. It's going to enable you to focus on other things that are more your value add and allow the technology to help. I, I do think this is not that different from you know, deciding that the dishwasher can be a liberating experience rather than uh, having to spend you know, all day uh, um, or most of the night at the kitchen sink, right? This will help in the long run be a more efficient tool if you can embrace it and it doesn't have to be a scary jump to make. And maybe for the, those who are concerned as they've heard us, whether uh, these tools will substitute uh, privacy lawyers in-house or outside, I just don't see it. I think it's, it'll allow us to focus on just the more, the, the more interesting issues as opposed to you know, trying to stop the leaks. I couldn't agree more. Uh, there was a time where I thought that might be a concern. 
we, you know, I just talked to a, a prospect today who is, you know, gonna, gonna buy what we're selling and also probably, you know, give Alyssa a call and figure out what they need to be considering. And there's always a role for, frankly, for people like me who have to teach the machines, right? We need to tell these systems what to do, putting aside the capabilities of AI and other things that have their own uh, perhaps shortcomings. Um, somebody has to teach the machines what they need to know. And there's a there's a role for that as well. So it's still a really exciting time to be in the privacy space. I think it's ready to sprinkle in some technology that that was missing before. It's not it's not a, a leading you know a cutting edge technology space right now in organizations in the legal department. And and I think that technologies like ours are going to start to bring those departments up to more parity with some of the other systems, uh, which is a long time coming and greatly needed. Amen to that. Uh, and that is an excellent note to end on. Thank you, Robert, for joining. I think, you know, we certainly covered a lot of ground and hopefully gave folks some very practical takeaways as they think about all of these changing obligations and needs. Uh, so with that, if you have uh, those in our audience, if you have more questions, you can go to our blog, adlawaccess.com, or we also have at kellydry.com at the very footer our advertising and privacy law resource, which has a whole bunch of one-on-one practical takeaways and resources there. So with that, thank you.